Hello, and thank you for listening to Literacy Matters. I'm your host, Cheryl Lundy-Swift. Today, I'm excited to be here with Lester Laminick, one of the authors of Critical Comprehension. Now, Lester is also author of several children's books, uh, like Saturdays and Tea Cakes. Welcome to the show, Lester. Thank you. It's good to be here. When I talk about reading aloud, I look at three intentions. One of them is, you know, purely to just engage you, you know, to get you interested, to get you curious about something. One of them is to invest in things that are coming in the future. So the example I gave about reading books about the Holocaust the week before the unit, I'm reading those now as an investment in the instruction that's coming. And then one of those intentions would be for pure instructional purposes, like in the moment of teaching. Um, if you're teaching math concepts that are kind of complex and kids aren't getting them, then I would turn to writers like Stuart Murphy and Greg Tang and Loreen Leedy so that there are books where the story incorporates math concepts and provides them in a context for kids who learn better through that contextual frame and make sense of it. So I think what you choose to read should match your intentions for doing the read aloud in the first place and should be something that serves as an engaging scaffold for the audience who sits before you. Wow. So, you know, as I'm as I'm thinking about those three intentions, right? I know you've written several books about read alouds. How exactly could we get the most out of a read aloud experience? Like tell me what what that would really look like for a teacher. Well, I think in order to make a read aloud work really well, the person who's doing the read aloud, whether it's a teacher, a parent, a grandparent, a, a caregiver, a librarian, whoever it is that's delivering that experience has to know the book. Mm. You know, so, and you know, when I was a brand new teacher, kids would come in with a book that some, they got for a birthday present. Will you read us this book? And of course I will. And you sit down and you start to read. And then you, you know, you make goofy mistakes because the tagline comes on the next page and you don't see it. So, you know, it's kind of like, well, who is that in my house? And then the next line is she whispered and you go, oops, you know, like I'm supposed to say, who is that in my house? Well, if I haven't pre-read the book, mm. then I lose an opportunity to help children recognize the shift in tone and intensity and the pacing of something which establishes a mood and helps you feel and make connections to the text. So to make a good read aloud, first, we have to know the book. And I think just like any, it is a performance. I mean, pure and simple read aloud is a performance, just like storytelling. Yeah. And so you would rehearse it, you know, like rehearse it, read it aloud. Even if you're sitting by yourself in your classroom at the end of the day, tomorrow I'm reading these three books to my class, read them aloud each once to no one. Hear yourself read it and figure out where do I need to speed up? Where do I need to drop down and almost whisper? And where do I need to just lean in and then shout so that you jump out of your seat? Because that's what the character does. You know, like I have to be the book. I have to deliver the characters and I have to think of it as a performance. And in some ways, a read aloud is a Madison Avenue advertisement for the power of literacy. 
It makes kids go, wow, I want to do that. I want to hear that story. Now, we have no idea what goes on inside the mind of a child when they read silently. We have no little monitors and probes we can put on and hear how they read. So we only know how they read when they read aloud. What we can do is to make sure that the models of reading aloud that they hear are the very best ones we can provide. And so someone who says, I'm not good at reading aloud, I just think we need to look at them and go, well, baby, you need to get good at reading aloud because you are the model for what reading sounds like. It is your voice that sets what the pace should sound like, how you shift your voice when you hear characters, how you whisper in places where the tension is building and how you pop out in surprise when something amazing happens. You know, if you want children to hear language in their head when they read silently, we have to model that when we read aloud. Wow, that's that's so powerful. You know, I did a workshop with uh, Dr. Deborah Reed and uh, we did it on oral language, actually. Mm. She read a book aloud and she one of the things that she did was she talked about, again, that same concept of like rehearsing and knowing the book, but also making little notes in the book uh, if there's vocabulary, for example, that you may need to highlight or explain. And I remember one of the words was souvenir that she talked about that maybe some children would know the word, but she could explain what it was. Um, of course, that was after that second read. So after the kids get to hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me, like, when you think about read alouds and you talk about these three intentions, like, is there a time that you should just only l- listen to the book? And is there a time to use the book for instruction, like the vocabulary that I was mentioning that Dr. Reed wanted to people to kind of point out and make sure they understood what those couple of vocabulary words might be? Yeah, and and there are people who, you know, that uh, there's a, co- a concept, interactive read aloud, the idea that we'd read aloud and have a lot of interaction during the read aloud. And, you know, that had, that's one of those intentions that would be like in that instructional zone. I am doing this to help you learn a concept. If I'm not doing that, then I would argue that the first reading of any book needs to be a gift. There's no expectations. There are no strings attached. I'm just giving you this story today. So today I'm going to read this book to you and we're going to read it all the way through. And if I'm working with little kids who naturally want to interrupt, I just tell them up front, I know you're going to have questions and things you want to share. And what I want you to do is to catch them in your hand, stuff them in your pocket and hold them to the end of the story, because we're not stopping anywhere. This is going to be like going to the movies. So I call it the movie read. You know, when you go to the movies, not at home on streaming, but to the real movie theater, you don't get to press pause and go get a drink or go to the bathroom. You don't get to talk and ask, what did he say? You just have to watch and listen. And most of the time, when you get to the end, it all comes together. So, you know, like you were talking about the word souvenir. I would read the book all the way through. And when I get to the end, we're all there. I would go, wow, there were a couple of words in there that were kind of new to us. So the word souvenir, what do you think it meant? The contextual frame in that story may well have developed 
a general understanding that allows us to talk about it and then lead us to the place where I can say, well, when there are words I'm unsure of, do you know where I go look? In the dictionary. So let's look it up and see if it matches what we believe from what we read, rather than me just telling them, and I'm not arguing with Dr. Reed, I think there are places where we do have to explain things to kids, but when I have that opportunity to not only say, did the context help you develop it, now you have an amorphous, an amorphous idea, don't assume you're correct, there is a place where you can check yeah. whether or not you are correct with this idea, and it introduces you know the idea of a reference tool so you know that in and of itself um is also uh, of some value yeah i i really really love that idea of of a movie it kind of again matches up to uh what would be playing in someone's head if you were actually reading mm -hmm. it like it is in fact a commercial for for literacy <laughs> i love that so so tell me a little bit about this new book that you have. What's your inspiration for it? Um, which one are you talking about? The one for yeah. children or the one yeah. for teachers? You know what? I want to do both. So hold on one second. We're going to, so I'm going to ask that question again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so you, you have this critical comprehension book that I mentioned. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about it, but I also want you to tell me about your picture book as well. So what was the okay. inspiration for this book first and foremost? Okay, that book, Critical Comprehension, um, is an outgrowth of a book that Katie Kelly and I did called Reading, um, Reading to Make a Difference, which was a focus on kids reading about social issues and reaching that moment of that's not fair, that's not right, and then coming to the place of, okay, so I agree with you, it's not right, and we're eight years old, and we're all in an elementary school, what can we do to make it better? And leaving kids to think about that, what a ninth grader would come up with would be very different than what a seven-year-old would come up with. But the idea that, you know, when you read about something and you recognize it is an injustice or you recognize it is inequitable, as a child even, you have power to make it known, to share it with people, to do something, to change your behavior. There are ways that you can help make that better. So that was the focus of reading to make a difference. As you know, that book had its space out in the world, Katie and I began to talk about you know, what is necessary underneath all of that sure. to, to the place is the concept of critical literacy, that you literally have to be able to um, and we say this in the book, yeah, and it's the work of Jenks, I believe, um, that you have to be able to read with the text, what we think of as normal reading, but you have to also be able to come back to that text and read against it, push back with the idea of, you know, whose voice is getting given privilege here and whose voice is silenced, what perspective is lifted up and presented and why that one, why not this one? What other things can I read that would give me a bigger, broader, more robust understanding? And then why is it that a newspaper article would only show that side versus this side? And there are lots of ways you could consider that, but you know, think about a piece of land that the city is planning to develop. 
and you have letters to the editor that throw up, fall into three camps. One of them is from ecologists who are saying, you know, there's a three-legged toad who lives only in that little piece of property in that one bog. And if we close this down and make a shopping center, that whole species will be gone. And then there's a economic group arguing, if we do this, we bring in tens of millions of dollars in construction and business and jobs. And then there's this sort of sociological group out here who argues, yeah, but if you do that, you got to increase the infrastructure. You're going to have more traffic flow. You're going to have more people in there. You're going to have greater population density. You're going to tax the system, which is going to raise our taxes. So you got three composing, three opposing perspectives. Sure. If you read only one of those perspectives, then you have only one piece of that information. You only know one side of that argument and you can easily be pulled in like, well, that makes so much sense. I'm gonna vote for this because we do need jobs in this community. But if you don't read the other two perspectives, you're making a decision on the basis of a lack of information. And so the idea of critical literacy is that you push in and ask, what other points of view could there be? Where would I find that information? How can I make my understanding of this more robust? And you would do that on any number of issues. Okay. So we pulled that book together and we invited Vivian Vasquez to join us because she has done, her whole career has been focused on doing that sort of work with very young children, like preschool and kindergarten children. And there are people out in the world who say those kids can't do that kind of work. They can't think like that. And it's like, oh yeah, they can. Sure you, they just, can. <laughs> you just have to bring it into the place where it's accessible. Um, so that was our thinking behind it. it. There's like this place where there's been a lot of work on critical literacy over the last several decades. But what we wanted to do is to make it um, very highly accessible and something that could be applicable tomorrow. So you'll notice in that book, there are lots of lessons um, and they feature picture books that are read three times once for the movie read, wants to read with the story and let kids respond with their own perspectives and begin to understand, oh yeah, I'm, I'm believing this because I have a certain set of biases I didn't know I had. Yeah. And then I am buying into a stereotype I wasn't recognizing that I'm buying into. So then once you recognize those, you go back and read against that text. Sure. So how is this feeding that? How is this expanding that? How is this offering me new opportunities? So we hope it does some good out in the world. We've got our fingers crossed. Well, so do I. I think it's so needed in today's world um, with so much um, false you know, sure. news yeah. and, and so forth. So I think that um, that is, that's, it's really a, a critical for a critical comprehension. <laughs> <laughs> now I really want to know about three hens, a peacock, and the enormous egg. Three hens and a peacock and the enormous egg is a sequel to this book, Three Hens and a Peacock, which I wrote um, years ago and it was published in 2012 or 11. Um, and it won the Children's Choice Award um, in that year. Yeah, and it, it, was, that. <laughs> it, was, it was a lovely, lovely, lovely surprise. Um, and it ends where the art, we talked about picture books earlier, the language just says, and everything went back to normal. 
But in the art, there's something happening. There is this thing falling off a truck, which suggests something new is going to take place. So when you turn the last page to the end papers, then what you find is an enormous egg, some interesting feathers, the three hens and the peacock peeking in from the edge. And I got for years, probably a hundred emails a year from kids in classrooms, sometimes little notes, sometimes a little brown envelope with a packet where kids had written that what happens next. And then, but almost all of them was going, what's in the egg? You know, what are the chickens going to do? Is there a sequel? Are we getting another story? So um, about two years ago, I decided, you know, I, I have written a letter back or an email back to every one of those responses saying the same thing over and over and over. I should just write this story. So <laughs> three hens, a peacock and the enormous egg picks up right where those end papers were and takes you into the same farm. And the opening scene is the closing scene of the last book. So it's like a Netflix series that just picks up where the last one goes. <laughs> and at the end, there is this little curveball right on the uh, end papers that kind of take you to another place that could lead to a bunch of questions um, and make you wonder. So the possibility that there could be a third book, but, you know, who knows? Who knows? But it was fun to do. And, you know. I, I had never written a sequel before, so sure. I learned that writing a sequel is risky business because, you know, if the first book or the first piece is has become um, a favorite or a beloved piece, then you risk that the book that follows it can't live up to sure. uh, the expectations, you know, um, and some people, you know, are saying things like, oh, I love this new book. And other people are saying like, I like the first one better. So it's just one of those risky kind of things you have to, you have to be willing to deal with. How would a teacher use both of these in the classroom? For really um, I think you could take the first one. And then when you get to the end, begin to project, you know, what do you think's in there? What's your evidence for that? What do you think the chickens, you know, based on how the chickens behaved, how the peacock behaved, how the dog behaved, what are the likely scenarios? You know, where could he go in writing the sequel? And then let's just sort of carry that out and write our rationales for it and then read the book and see where we were. You know, where are we? How close are we to that? And, you know, do they like their own scenarios better than mine? I'm okay with that if they do. But just to have them sort of think through what could come next and put themselves in the same position I was in. You know, people love this. They had lots of questions about it. Now, what are you going to do? How do you match that and play off of that? Um, and then they'll realize, wow, writing a sequel is <laughs> not so easy. It, it, it is It is not, I would imagine. I, I, I would love for you to, to, to just leave us with, with, one final, with one final note. So as you know, it's some, some schools are, will be back next week uh, oh. in some parts of the country. Um, and then, of course, we'll have a rolling. I'm in the Northeast, so we'll be going back after Labor Day. So tell me if you could say anything to teachers returning and, and really gonna, I'm going to caveat, I'm going to make this a caveat here. So new teachers returning, what would you say to them? Novice teachers, those teachers who've been doing it, but for a short period of time. And then those 
those teachers who who are more seasoned, who've done this for a long time, what advice would you give the three of them? Would it be one set of advice? Would it be three different things? Tell me. Uh, first of all, I would say to any teacher who's returning this fall and where I live, there are teachers already in schools. Wow. What I was the very first thing I would say to any of them is thank you. You know, just thank you. Yeah. This we are experiencing the largest exodus of teachers from our profession in the history of our profession, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And there are lots of reasons that most of us who work in education understand. We know why they're leaving. We've seen the changes in curriculum. We've seen legislation that restricts them. We've seen teachers fired for choosing to read the wrong book. Um, and I can only imagine the stress level every day. And to those who have decided to stay, who believe that their presence makes a difference in the life of a child and enhances the lives of a family or this culture or this country, I just say thank you. You know, thank you for being there and thank you for being the people who are willing to stick this out. How can we help? The other part of it was it's long, I think, long understood and deeply rooted notions that what makes the most difference in any classroom is not some chart on the wall or some kit in a box or some fancy curriculum guide. It's the human being who is there. And in all things you do, be kind, be human, be responsive, respect the child, let nothing you do take away any child's dignity as a human being or compromise their integrity as a learner or cause them to question their ability to succeed because you have failed. If that occurs, you have failed. You know, if you don't raise their test scores, I'm less concerned than if you destroy their identity, their integrity, or their confidence. Raising something at the cost of the other is immoral. And so I just look at it from the standpoint of like, if, you know, when all else fails, ask yourself, what would Fred do? Fred Rogers is like Mr. Rogers neighborhood is my educational hero. He was ever focused on what children need. He did not make decisions, at least not apparently. He did not make decisions based on commercial gain yeah. or financial advancement. He made decisions on the basis of what would be good for children. And he understood the power of structures and routines and consistency of being calm and peaceful in the presence of a child, not losing your cool, remaining the adult, being a leader rather than being reactive. Um, I think that's probably really important. To young children, to young teachers, I would say to them, be patient with yourself. Give yourself space to be wrong. You know, you learned a lot in college and you're full of energy and focus and creativity. First of all, let no one down the hall strip you of that. And secondly, 
make friends with everybody. You need all the support you can, especially your school secretary and your custodian and the lunchroom workers. You need those people on your side because <laughs> they make a school run. Um, find a mentor in the building. Journal. Find some time at least once or twice a week to journal your thoughts. So when days are really, really super good, write pages. And then when days are really, really bad, read those good pages. Remind yourself, you know, this is tough, but good days have happened. And let's look, what's, what happened? What's different? Because you won't have the answer every day, all day. You just won't. You're a human being. To the seasons teachers, you know, the thing I would say to them is bless you for staying this long. And find yourself one of those young people who invigorates and gets you refocused and be their mentor. Help them realize why you have stayed because the world is telling them every day at every turn, get out, get out now. Why do you want to be a teacher? Help them realize why you have stayed this long. And I don't know about you, Cheryl, but this is my 46th year of being in education. I'm not in a classroom, but I started teaching in 1977 and some form of education or another is all I've ever done. I mean, this, I, I, I think my identity is wrapped up in being an educator. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm hoping that those seasoned people feel that, that it is part of the fiber of their being and that their existence is a model for those young people who think, you know, wow, I want to be him. I want to be her. I, I want to be the teacher that kids come to. And when you watch a seasoned veteran super teacher in a classroom, it is absolute art. It is, it is, yes. It's art and science wrapped into one, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and, and you know, they are the people who can make it look like magic. Like, wow, this is effortless. How do you make that work? Sure. And those young people need to hang out with them, you know, and realize, wow, that magic doesn't happen overnight. That comes with a lot of work, a yes, lot of reading, a lot of understanding and insight to the point that it becomes second nature to you. But it is always always work. Lester, this is my 26th year and you're right. It is, it is my identity. And I, I so appreciate your, your putting those words in that way. I can't imagine doing anything else. And, and I too, am out of the school building, mm -hmm. but I am still enthralled and get to work with teachers and school leaders around the world. And it is a blessing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really appreciate your wisdom. And I thank you so much. I learned, I've had the opportunity to talk to you on multiple occasions now. And I just thank you for the work that you do and just adore, uh, adore you for the insights that you provide and just your, your humanness, your humanity. Thank, um, you. thank you for thank sharing you. it with us. Yes. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I appreciate it.